I'm Ben Jenkins, and this is Mentel. In connecting through my journey of overcoming adversity and building and maintaining my own mental fitness, here on Mentel, we hope to destigmatize the notion that men shouldn't burden others with their troubles, that they should keep it to themselves and man up and get on with it. We're doing the exact opposite. We talk about everything the good times and the challenging times. We talk to some amazing people who share our passion and some brave blokes sharing their own unique stories to show that there is healing in connection and that there is more to being a man than manning up. So let's pick up the conversation. At my lowest point, I was in a psychiatric hospital. I'd lost my job. I was unable to uh, pay the mortgage and put food on the table. And I'd lost my, you know, my rank and everything that, that I had going for me. And it was a complete bottom. Andy Cullen is a 17-year veteran of the Australian Army. He has been deployed on various operations, including in Afghanistan. And on returning home, Andy, like so many soldiers, suffered from PTSD. Now, he and his wife Zoe widely share their journey of living with mental illness and have brought healing to many men and families living with a family member who has been diagnosed, not only through their book, but through speaking events and their programs. Andy is the real deal. He has a great passion for normalising conversations about mental illness. Andy and I actually grew up in the same area. We're around the same age, went to schools around the corner from each other, and I find it fascinating that life has taken us down two paths that couldn't have been more different to end up discovering the same passion for talking about men's mental health. So let's bring him in. Andy Cullen, welcome to the Mentel podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here, mate. I've been looking forward to having a chat. Excellent. Excellent. Now, after 17 years service in the Australian Army, including a commendation for distinguished service for operations in Afghanistan, uh, you had somewhat of a rough landing, if I can say, after returning home. Uh, it's a story that you've shared widely in the hope of helping others. Can you tell us about your career and the events that unfolded when you returned from, from Afghanistan? Yeah, sure, mate. Um, a bumpy landing is probably a good way to describe it. Uh, 17 years in the Army. I grew up in a military home, so my father served 50 years uh, in the Australian Army. It was mm, something wow. I always knew I wanted to do. So, you know, living in a, as an army brat, traveling around the country, living in various places, even overseas, I just saw it as a um, important job, one that had a lot of honor attached to it. So immediately after school, I signed up. I joined as an infantryman, as a rifleman, uh, private soldier. Did that for about six years, working my way through the ranks and was um, commissioned later on as an officer into the Royal Australian Corps of Engineers. Whilst in the in the infantry, I, I developed a, uh, I suppose, a bit of a fascination with bombs and, and wow. started uh, blowing stuff up, which, you know, let, yeah. let's be honest, every boy's dream. Yeah. yeah. So engineers for me was a, was a great choice and um, I'd studied university uh, at university and completed a degree in architecture. So it also sort of came together that way. So the rest of my career, the next sort of 10, 10 and a half, 11 years was spent uh, as an officer um, with this sort of soldiering background or, or foundation. And it served me very well. I loved the military. I still speak very highly of the military. I think it's a great career choice for a lot of young men and women. It satisfied a, a great 
sort of urge in my soul to serve the country. You know, I was, I'm a patriotic person and, and I always wanted to do something uh, that was bigger than myself. I wanted to serve a community that was larger than um, my own sort of circle of friends and family. Uh, and the military really gave me an opportunity to do that on a national and international scale. It did see me deploy on various operations overseas, some peacekeeping type operations and to uh, war in Afghanistan. I did mm -hmm. uh, two deployments in 2008 and 2011 and 2012. Those deployments were tough, mate, to be honest. And, yeah. and that was the area where I started to suffer from uh, mental health issues, including well, I was later diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and major depressive disorder. To be honest, I didn't have too many issues whilst I was in the military. I was very focused and driven on what I was doing, so I didn't really have time to to focus on on some of the uh, associated symptoms of post-traumatic stress and, and depression. I was very driven career-wise and I was very driven as far as the importance of the role and the mission overseas. So I, I witnessed a lot of people struggling with things on a day-to-day -day basis whilst at war. Wow. I always actually saw it as a bit of a weakness. I thought it was something that would only impact people that were maybe predisposed to this stuff or mm. or that were already a bit weak of mind and, and, and that way inclined. Um, so when I started to experience some of these things myself on return from uh, theatre back in Australia, I started to question my own sort of strength and uh, and and capacity as a as a soldier, and it was um it was a very distressing time, mm. but you know, I, once I got out of the military, the only reason I got out, I should add, is because uh, family pressures and things like that. But to my wife was um, looking after three kids at the time at home um, by herself, and was kind of at the point where she was sick of being a single mum, so put a lot of pressure on me to make a decision it was the military or family mm. and so it was at that point that I actually decided to get out of the military and, and focus on the home front but with that separation from the military came um, a number of big questions that I wasn't really able to answer internally some of those were you know associated with my purpose my identity mm. And, uh, and so much of that had been wrapped up in a uniform and in the military. So yeah. it was after I separated from the military in 2012 that I started to uh, suffer quite badly from some of the symptoms and signs associated with post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and really it took me on a journey that I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. Yeah. It was a horrific few years. How bad did it get? How was that presenting for you? PTSD for me presented in a, in a number of ways, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I think some of the earliest sort of symptoms were nightmares, uh, flashbacks. And when you're tired, you know, you don't sleep well, so you, you're tired, you become more irritable. So mm -hmm. I was getting uh, bouts of anger around yeah. the home, basically just starting to isolate myself uh, from friends and family. More was focused solely on work. So I, when I got out of the military, I went straight into a job 
uh, training counterterrorism and bomb disposal to police mm. and militaries around Australia. And um, I was just traveling and, and focused on that, but I, I just wasn't at rest. I, I couldn't stop my mind to find peace and, and it just wore me down. So I only lasted in that job about six months before I had a complete mental breakdown and ended yeah. up into a, in a psychiatric ward. So, yeah, the, the symptoms were really uh, highlighted or, or magnified through some of my choices at the time. So I chose to use alcohol quite substantially mm-hmm. to try and deaden some of the dreams and nightmares, night terrors that I was having. Mm. I was developing a lot of anxiety, social anxiety around crowds, that sort of thing. Uh, driving became very difficult, became, I'd sort of go from naught to 100 in, in rage with, within a second. And it got to a point where I was sort of having daily clashes with other motorists on the on the road you know verbal confrontations and things like this which wasn't really my personality it wasn't certainly wasn't my behavior before war Um, my wife used to say you know you went to war i married one man and you came back a completely different person so Mm -hmm. war does change people it's stress it's a way that traumas sort of impacted on the body I had a lot of physical symptoms as well. I had a lot of what the doctors referred to as stress rashes that mm. would appear in, in odd areas of my body, like yeah. in my along my arms and, and around my chest. And it was just really frustrating because you're thinking, this is something that's going on in my head. Why is my body being impacted so badly? Yeah. You know, irregular heartbeat. I remember the first time I had a panic attack and I thought I was dying. I thought, yeah. Yeah, that was a, a horrible thing to go through. Um, kind of felt like I was suffocating and, and uh, didn't know what was happening, maybe having a heart attack or something. I later found out, oh, it's a panic attack. And you think, wow, like something that was triggered from a, a mental condition that can have such a powerful impact physically on your body mm. that if essentially you stop breathing yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah. pass out. Yeah. So there was a lot of different symptoms, Ben, associated with the early sort of yeah. onset of PTSD. What was the tipping point for you to, to get help where you kind of went, okay, this is not something I can manage, I need some help here? Yeah, I was really fortunate. I had a very strong, loyal wife um, mm-hmm. by my side who was incredibly committed to our marriage Yeah, and me as a human being, like, yeah. To be honest, I wouldn't be here without her and the support that she gave me, particularly in the early days. Yeah, A lot of marriages don't survive PTSD. Mm. You know, uh, this is just a, a sad fact of mental health issues. Yeah. You don't, you know, a sufferer of PTSD isn't just impacted by them as an individual. Everyone in their sphere is, is impacted. So yeah. My PTSD was impacting my wife, our relationship. It was impacting my children in a very negative way. And she was scared. She was scared about what that meant for them as future you know, human beings in society, how they were going to, to respond and react to what, what they were seeing. And essentially, I was an alcoholic, abusive husband mm. and father that was pretty much out of control for, for quite a period there. But what tipped it for me was my wife and I had a pretty full-on conversation. I knew that if I didn't voice this with her, 
then all hope was lost and I was going to kill myself. Right. So I don't, I still don't know how I got the courage to do it at the time, Ben, because I look back mm. and I think, wow, you know, that conversation saved my life. But I said, Zoe, I, I don't feel well. I actually feel like taking my own life. Her reaction to that was, well, it was very supportive, I'll say. It was, it was a difficult conversation. But yeah. once I was able to voice what was actually going on in my head because I, was, I had suicidal ideation for quite some time mm. leading up to that conversation because I just wanted the pain to stop. I wanted the chaos to stop. And I, I actually got to a point where I thought I was a burden on my own family more than, yeah. more than anything else and that they deserved better and that their lives would be better without me. Now, these I know were all lies looking back, but they were very true to me at the time. Zoe was able to say a few things that sort of shifted my perspective. One of them was she said, you've still got purpose and you've still got identity. So as I said before, my purpose and my identity were yeah. very much wrapped up in my service and my uniform, the yeah. Australian Army. That's all I'd done. You know, my life was associated with the military. And all you'd seen as a, as a kid as well. That's right. So. Yeah. Everything was wrapped up in that. And I said, well, you know, I'm no longer an officer. I'm no longer in the army. I'm no, I'm no one. I'm not doing anything worthwhile. I'm no longer value adding to society, which is very important to me as a person with a, with a service heart. You know, I've got a heart to serve. I need to feel like I'm um, impacting society in, in some sort of positive way. And she said, but you're a father and you're a husband. And for the first time, I realized that those two things are quite important. I'd always put the military and service first above my family, mm. which most people, when they talk about their jobs, jobs don't come before family. That's a, mm. you know, that's a bit of a, a strange thought to a lot of people outside of military world. Mm. But for me, um, service came first. And it came first because... There was still soldiers dying overseas. There was an important role that we were playing. This was life and death. It, it had to come first in many ways, but I had a, a, a very off-balance um, approach to my family. And now, you know, my family comes first. But yeah. understanding and trying to get my head around the fact that being a father and a husband had both worth and an importance was a real catalyst for me deciding that I wanted to live and um, I wanted to see my kids grow up into, yeah. you know, world cha young world changes and yeah, I wanted yeah. to see my wife happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, that's it. The, talking about your kids becoming world changers, I think this self-work that you've done and the work that you and Zoe, who, you know, sounds to be like an incredible woman, it, it's this kind of work that, that your kids see that, that does, you know, sort of help them go on to be world changers, like you said, because they see the, 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 uh, the, the great outcomes of, of this stuff. But Matt, I just first of all, I just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing that story. You know, and it is an incredible story of going through that roller coaster of of finding out that you have a mental illness and the the sort of low point of that, and then you know finding support from from talking about it and being able to come out the other side. And again, thank you so much for sharing. It's very brave.
I just wanted to touch on something that you, you mentioned before a little bit. It's it's often something that comes um, with mental illness, and particularly for blokes, is uh, sometimes that level of shame or or guilt for what they're going through. Going through, you know, something that's beyond our control has us losing control at times. And again, what you touched on with purpose. Once a once a bloke feels like they've lost their purpose, it's 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 something that really seems to sweep the rug from out from under us. I know I've, you know, and it's, it's a very different situation, but experienced it with cancer uh, myself and the way those side effects that impacted my mental health through, through unexpressed emotion sort of had those impacts on, on my relationship as well. I don't know if you, if you can relate to that, but that real sense of guilt and shame over what you're going through and how that uh, has an effect on, on your relationship and on your family potentially. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, guilt and shame are, are probably the, the leading precursors to suicide or mm. ideation and ultimately suicide, I believe. Mm. Certainly um, very prevalent within the, the veteran and service community that we support. For me, it had a, a, a big impact on initially me not wanting to seek help mm. uh, what I was going through because of a, a predisposed idea that, you know, um, mental health issues were something to be ashamed of. Yeah, yeah. And the reality is very far from that, you know. Yeah. When we're exposed to trauma, um, as human beings, then we have empathy for people that are hurt or, or um, situations yeah. that occur. So for me, my job in, in Afghanistan, I was a bomb disposal technician. Mm-hmm. And a, a large part of that job was sort of post-blast. So part of it was, you know, rendering safe improvised explosive devices or roadside bombs. Yeah. The other part was cleaning up after the bombs had gone off. Right. You know, evidence collection biometrics that sort of thing but that that that's the the side of my job that that haunted me it was it was horrific i would see um, parts of my own uh, colleagues and friends torn apart by by devices picking up women and children uh, torn apart these things haunted me but i look back at it now and i think how unhuman would i have been if I wasn't impacted by that. Yeah. Like it's not something to be ashamed of. Guilt and shame are a funny thing, you know. Shame, yeah. you get this idea of, you know, brava, uh, the, the sort of manly um, environment within the military where, you know, you don't don't whinge about anything. I was certainly brought up in a home where if you fall over or hurt yourself, you dust yourself off and get on with it. And so that's the way I, I sort of approach life. And, and when these things started to hit me where I was, unable to get up and dust myself off mm. i thought i'd failed i'd failed as a man i'd failed as a father as a husband mm. there's a lot of guilt and a lot of shame around that at my lowest point and i'd lost my you know my rank and everything that, that i had going for me and it was a complete bottom you know you think mm. you, you, you sort of think of, i'm a total failure i've reached a point of of total failure as a man when I can't even support my own family. For me, there was a very specific incident in that hospital, which I'll share with you. Mm-hmm. I wasn't raised as a Christian or, or um, a very religious person. So this experience was quite different for me at the time but um, and very confronting. But I was given a Bible while I was in there and I, I opened it up and I read this passage. It was Second Timothy 1 verse 7. It said, 
you are not made with a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of sound mind. And I read it and I actually burst out laughing. I thought, <laughs> this is like the comp- this book is telling me the complete opposite of the reality of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Love, I'd, I'd literally lost the ability to love my own children. I remember thinking this is how a psychopath must feel, a, mm. a complete loss of empathy and emotion where, you know, one of my sons would fall over and hurt himself and I'd just be like, you'll be right. Yeah. And, and, and sort of numb, numb to this, you know, it, sad, it saddens me to say that I was like that for a period of my life, mm. but my, my mind was really hurting and, and this loss of empathy, I think, was a protection mechanism that, that sort of happened. Yeah. Power, I'd lost my job, my authority, my rank, as discussed, I was no longer major Andy Cullen EOD technician, I was no one. Yeah. And sound mind, I was literally inside a, uh, a psychiatric hospital. So yeah, they yeah. don't technically lock up people with sound mind. So I thought this is completely opposite. But I read it and I read it and I read it and I started to let those words sink in. And I thought, what if what those words are saying could be true about my life? And for a moment, I started to think of another possibility. I started to think of a future that could be brighter, a future that didn't end with me taking my own life. Mm. And so it was just a glimmer of hope in the in the midst of this dark scenario that really um, was a was a part of the puzzle to to saving my life and turning my life around. Yeah. I, I believe strongly in this. We have these moments. I had similar things happen to me where, you know, I had these epiphanies and it was for me, it was, you know, you need to share your story for other people to help them. Yeah. But it's almost like that's that little moment for you where you saw that passage, you read that, and that was to put you on the path that you're on now, doing the great things you're doing for, for other people. That's right. That's incredible. I think there's something very healing about once you've walked through a uh, a certain trauma, like you, you spoke about cancer, mm. being a survivor and having walked through the, the difficulties of that, yeah. it gives you an authority to be able to speak into the lives of others in a positive way. Yeah. yeah. And it almost, I, I believe it's almost like a, um, it's a human need to, to be able to shine a ray of hope mm. into what is otherwise a really crappy situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when we were going through our journey, after some time, I was I was encouraged to write down a lot of my um, my thoughts and my experiences from a, a psychologist that I was seeing, mm. and it and it really helped me. Just that the whole process of writing became quite yeah. cathartic. And trauma is tricky, you know. You, I had a lot of different traumas over over my career, um, so many of them would sort of get knotted up in my head into, you know, they wouldn't all just be single incidents that all sort of blend together. Mm. Writing them out actually helped to untangle that mess that was yeah. going on in my mind and and really nail down each one of these traumas in a in a way that I could put it down on paper, deal with it to some extent and move on from it. Mm. And so that process ended up seeing my wife reading them, what I was writing. And I was talking a lot about um, how I was coping at home with the family and things that were going on from my perspective. And I remember her reading it and saying, that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, yeah. 
go and write your own story. (laughs) And so she did. She started writing her story. And eventually we had a friend say, hey, you guys need to share your experience because what you've walked through as a family, this is impacting a lot of people and not a lot of people know how to get through this stuff. See, when I was diagnosed with PTSD, I thought, well, great. Now that makes sense. At least I can put a name to something. But what does that mean? And so all these weird things were happening like hallucinations, nightmares, panic attacks, you know, things that we spoke about earlier. Yeah. But why and how do you deal with them? Well, that information wasn't there. I was just sort of going through this on my own. Yeah, yeah. And largely by choice as well. I didn't want to talk to others. I started seeing an increase in suicides amongst the veteran community and people I knew and served with. Yeah. And um, it got to a point where it was getting pretty bad. You know, some statistics, I suppose, that will put this into perspective for your listeners would be we lost 42 soldiers killed in Afghanistan throughout the war, which is very low numbers. Mm. We were very fortunate as a nation, but 42 people killed serving their country during that conflict. Mm. We've lost over 400 to suicide since coming home. So, you know, the... These figures were starting to to really burden me Mm. and I knew why they were dying. I knew that they were struggling with the same things I was struggling with. Yeah. I knew that they were asking themselves the same questions about their value as a human being, their their purpose and their identity. They were struggling with guilt. They were struggling with shame. Mm. And I thought, I have to do something about it. And this is what's so powerful when we find the courage to share our story we actually give an opportunity for others to find that hope and a reason to live yeah and you cannot put a value on that yeah the number of people that i've spoken to that have said andy i read your book or um you know thank you for running that course it's changed my life i you know i want to live and i want to be here for my family and and all these things and it just it blows me away and all comes from a really simple thing of just having the courage to talk about it and share our experiences because we're not meant to do life alone, mate. We're, we're yeah, part yeah. of a, a community. We're part of a tribe and yeah, um, yeah. people care. Yeah, it's a couple of things uh, that you mentioned. Firstly, I, I I myself have experienced having kind of empathy sort of in my shadow side and, and hard to access it, you know, through just some you know things that have happened to me in the past. Something you said as well, and I think it's something that I heard um, Brene Brown say, actually, and it was that, you know, us being authentic or being real creates empathy. And then it's that empathy that creates connection. Like you said, that's what we are designed to be as human beings is connect. Yeah. Being part of a tribe. Empathy is so important, mate. I mean, I remember that the loss of empathy and the feeling of sadness that was Mm. there because I felt like maybe it was gone forever. Yeah, yeah. And that I'd I'd lost the ability to get in touch with it again. Yeah. It was an amazing incident that happened that really reconnected me with with love, Mm, with mm. empathy. I remember it very vividly. I was sitting on the end of my bed, um, my head in my hands, uh, completely distraught. I was crying, thinking about this plan that I had to, to end my life. And my daughter, who was about three years old at the time, came into the room and she she came up to me and, 
as little kids do, she tried to put her arms around my neck to give me a cuddle. Yeah. And I pushed her away. I was too much in my own darkness. And yeah. She kept coming back. I, I must have pushed her away five, six, seven times. I don't know how many times. Yeah, but she yeah. just kept coming back. And she eventually got herself into a position where she got both her arms around my neck, pulled herself up to my ear and said, I love you, Dad. Wow. Something broke in me that yeah. that day. And it was it was a reconnection because she was showing me unconditional love. Mm. I had nothing for her. Nothing. Yeah. Yet she was still showing me and telling me that she loved me. Mm. And it was an amazing sort of spiritual breakthrough for mm. me to realise that, hey, hang on, I just felt that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I felt I felt love for my little girl. Yeah. But it, it took a lot of persistence from a little three-year-old to break through. Yeah. When we're born and you see it in a, in, in a, in a small child, like you say, with your daughter, it's, it's they, they only know love. They haven't lived long enough to be affected by fear. And yeah. um, that is the, the part of ourselves that we return to when we heal, I believe. And, you know, it does take work to do that, like you've done and, and I've done my own work. But we can get back to that. And there's no weakness in doing that. That is our inherent nature, I believe. And, and, and That's going, right. going back to that is returning home. Yeah, it is returning home. There is definitely hope there. So, you know, if any of your listeners are thinking, oh, you know, that's me, I, I kind of feel completely disconnected, mm. even with those that are closest to me, that love can return. Sometimes it's a season, sometimes it's a, a grief cycle, sometimes it's just processing, but hanging in there and and understanding that that can change, that the future, it's not in concrete, it doesn't have to play out the way that you're telling yourself in your mind that it's going to play out, that there is hope, that, that love can return to um, mm. to almost any situation. It, mm. It's beautiful. The number of marriages that we see restored through our programs is just, I love it. I love seeing families reconnect, come back together and, and able to, to love one another and, and live a positive and productive life together. Mm. And that's what we're supposed to do as human beings, you know. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a bit more about the work that you're doing. Like you mentioned the book, so you you, uh, you and your wife, Zoe, uh, wrote a book about your story. Yep. And there's other work that you're doing as well with your charity, Resurrected uh, Inc. Yep. Tell us a bit about that and about how you found it, how people have responded um, to the book and then and then also to the charity and what kind of impact it's having. Sure. Well, so the book's called resurrected a story of hope mm -hmm. and really it's just a, a, about a second chance at life you know and our family's story about getting through or walking through the challenges that ptsd depression alcohol addiction entailed part of that journey saw us go to america to do uh, some speaking tours and speaking on bases on in the military um different in through our different states in America and it was an incredible experience but whilst we were over there we kept hearing about this course called Reboot mm -hmm. it was called Reboot Combat Recovery and it was designed for veterans that had come back from war that were struggling with this idea of moral injury yeah. and this was the first time I'd even heard the term moral injury I yeah. thought what's a moral injury or a soul wound mm. and essentially a moral injury or a soul wound is is 
witnessing or being a part of something that goes against your core moral beliefs or moral values mm. and it leaves a wound on the spirit on the soul mm. and for me when i heard that and i heard the definition i thought that is incredible that is exactly what i've gone through mm. in in war you know witnessing innocent women and children killed in war was horrific to me I couldn't reconcile that with the society of growing up in Australia. Yeah. And there was many challenges of, you know, the, the importance of life. And, and um, anyway, I won't go into it too much, but, but this idea of moral injury mm. sort of really resonated with me. And I found it interesting. I wanted to hear more about this course because everything I'd done to try and seek help for PTSD in Australia was all based around like cognitive brain therapy yeah. or um, yeah. reliving your experiences and going through it to, to desensitize yourself. Mm -hmm. There was a bunch of different things that I'd tried, but I'd never heard anyone talk about the root causes of trauma and addressing the moral injury of things. And I thought, man, so we ended up in a, in a little place called Nashville, Tennessee, <laughs> yeah. beautiful town. Yeah big on the country music side but um we met these people and they were running reboot and uh this course has been developed in 2010 and been operating since 2011 in the states they dealt with ptsd on a much larger scale than we saw yeah. here in australia because of the iraq war conflict and yeah vietnam and everything post that they, they've kind of always had a constant cycle of war yeah where we had a period of great peace after vietnam we had you know, various peacekeeping operations and things, but no great war fighting. Yeah. And so after Afghanistan, we saw quite an increase in PTSD amongst the veteran community, but we weren't dealing with it well. So I saw this course, we spoke to the people that created it, and they walked us through what the course was. At that time, it was run over 12 weeks, one day a week. A group of people would come together, share a meal, and go through some lessons. It wasn't a support group. It wasn't a sit around and tell us how sad your life is, um, which I'd experienced in, in some of the, the programs that I've gone to yeah. here. It was an actual program that you had to work through. And it dealt with what I call the root causes of trauma. So not the surface issues, not the things that we often see doctors and things try to, try to medicate, things like alcohol and drug addiction, anger, things of that nature it actually addressed things like identity, yeah. purpose, um, guilt, shame. Managing the cause, not the symptom, yeah. Yeah, exactly, the cause, not the symptom. And I've heard it explained like if you see a beautiful lush green lawn and there's weeds coming up and you go and mow the lawn, well, all, all of a sudden you've got a nice lush green lawn again, but soon enough those weeds are going to yeah. pop back up and you're going to yeah. see them unless you pull them out by the root. Now, trauma is kind of the same. Unless you deal with the root, the symptoms are just going to keep appearing. Yeah. So I thought, this is fantastic. We did the course. I found a great deal of breakthrough and knowledge increase and healing from it. We said, we've got to bring this back to Australia. Mm. And so they helped us to do that. Uh, initially, I wanted to see it brought into another charity, an existing organisation. Uh, but no one really had the courage to to take it up. So Zoe and I decided we were going to fund it ourselves and, and deliver this thing. So wow. we delivered the first course in Kurumban RSL, mm -hmm. beautiful little RSL uh, down near the border. And we had an incredible experience. And 
everyone that completed that course came on and said, oh, look, I want to be involved. How can we help? And it was just amazing. And it sort of just started to snowball. And so we thought, well, if we're going to do this, we've got to sort of set it up right. And so we'd never done anything like this before. But we thought we'd spoken to a few people and thought, okay, we can create a charity and start fundraising to deliver these courses because we deliver everything free. I don't believe anyone suffering from trauma as a result of their service should have to pay to find healing. So we work very hard to deliver these courses for free. It developed over time. We actually got a request to go to uh, Northern Ireland. We had an an Northern Irishman complete our course here in Australia. Yeah. And he was a Royal Ulster Constabulary. Yeah. um, So police officer from the RUC and uh, basically policing in a war zone Mm -hmm. for 20 years and suffered a lot of trauma. And he said, this course is amazing. We need it in Northern Ireland. Mm. And we thought, okay, well, if you want to set it up, we'll go and deliver it. I don't mind. I'd love to go to Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. So next minute, Zoe and I and the kids are on a plane to um, Belfast Mm. and two Aussies delivering an American course in Northern Ireland. But we thought, we can't we can't stay there for 12 weeks. How are we going to do this? Yeah. So we rolled it into a four-day program. As Aussies, you know, we tend to shorten things. The Yanks do it yeah. in 12 weeks. We'll do it in four yeah. days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was a great success. It had an amazing uptake. It had some incredible breakthrough for and healing for people. Yeah. And the, the concept was proven. So we thought, well... We can probably deliver a lot more four-day courses than we can deliver 12-week courses. Why don't we just start rolling them out in Queensland? Mm. So we did that for about a year. The word spread, the typical, um, you know, digger telegraph, people saying, hey, this really worked for me. Maybe you can find help here. Yeah, right. Go and do it. Anyway, soon enough, RSL Queensland contacted us and wanted to do a review of our program because they'd heard such great results. They did a pilot program and funded us for the first time over two courses. And as a result of those courses and the healing that occurred there, they decided to take us on as a partner program. And now we deliver these programs nationwide. That's fantastic, yeah. And it's incredible, mate. I I love it. It gives me a great sense of purpose. Yeah, I love meeting people. Some of the, the best people in society are these veterans and first responders that have served their nation and their communities that are just hurting Mm. and feel like they can't value add anymore. Mm. The reality is very different. They just need to heal, yeah. And we just help them to see that. Yeah, they just need to heal. Mm. And they just need people to come alongside them for that journey because it's a horrible journey to do alone. I I actually don't know anyone that's done it alone Mm. successfully. Mm -mm. And so, you know, it's great. We, we deliver the reboot recovery programs across the country and then COVID hit. Mm. So that was interesting. Yeah, it's been an interesting year, that's for sure, yeah. Yeah, we had to reevaluate, and we were working with an organisation called, uh, oh, my goodness, the <laughs> name's escaped me at the moment. Anyway, they actually encouraged us to, to put the, the course online. And I thought, you can't do this online. That would be impossible. It's such a emotional yeah. sort of experience. Yeah. Connection. You've got to be to there connection. And, yeah. and, and walk through this stuff with people. Yeah. And, and I was really encouraged by this lady to say, no, no, you'd be surprised. You could do this. Mm. And I thought, well, it's COVID. There's a lot of people suffering. Mm. What have we got to lose? So we gave it a shot. And this year we ran three online programs. 
and oh, that's great with great success and and actually took the program to a wider audience where you know people in remote communities that would never have an opportunity to attend a course were able to attend mm. we had one course that had three family members in three different states attend together yeah right a big part of our program is where they're not just for the veteran or the first responder, but also the family. Yeah, absolutely. We encourage partners to do the um, the course alongside the sufferer. Yeah. One, it gives them a much better understanding of actually what what they're going what through. is going on. Yeah. Yeah. And and two, encourages empathy and growth. Yeah. In relationships, but you know how sometimes if you're too close to a situation, you can't see it. Yeah. We see partners talking and opening up on these programs. And all of a sudden, other partners and couples are listening and saying, that's what's going on in my life. Yes. That's that's exactly what. And so that idea of, oh, I'm not alone. Oh, other people are going through this too. Oh, they get it. It's really cathartic. It's very mm. healing. I mean, I should add these programs, we're not, we're not counsellors, we're not psychologists, we're not psychiatrists, yeah. although the programs are supported by professional psychologists and psychiatrists. We actually are just veterans and first responders mm, mm. with a lived experience that are yeah. there to help, you know. Something else I, you know, that I thought about while we're talking, and I actually had a thought about it when we first spoke before we, we jumped on to do this podcast, and it's around the type of person you need to be to put yourself in a war zone, to unselfishly put others first, to perform your duty, uh, like you said, and it's such a brave and courageous act in my view. But what I thought a lot about is whether it's possible for anyone, be, that, be it a man or a woman, to be able to truly suppress or, or brush off the trauma that that can inevitably come um, with putting yourself in in that situation and you know we all know that as humans we're not really built to endure those sustained periods of stress yeah it's a question that we get asked often you know yeah i i don't think you can measure trauma against people yeah so what's traumatic to me may be a walk in the park to you Mm. or vice versa Mm. um Sometimes what we see a lot of is accumulative trauma. Right. Where trauma has happened over a, a vast period of time. And, it, you know, I, I like the analogy, a cup can only take so much water. Right. Once it's full, it's full. Yeah. And things start overflowing. Do you think that's different for different people? Their cups, you know, so in this analogy, are bigger than others, you know? Absolutely. People are wired differently. You know, their, their upbringings are different. Their, their exposures, their experiences are different. Some people are just incredibly good at dealing with trauma by shutting it out. Yeah. I used to lock everything up. So after my first tour in 2008, I started to experience some of these symptoms associated with PTSD, like nightmares and hallucinations. And I very quickly locked it away in a in a box in the back of my mind that said do not open it yeah i told myself don't go there yeah okay because i knew if i did my career would be over right yeah and in fact all i wanted to do was get back overseas because Mm. i i found the the work we were doing over there was so important Mm -hmm. and so impactful and there were still people dying and i could potentially impact that you know i could save someone's life so it was very important to me to focus on what we were doing. So I was able to effectively shut it off for years. Yeah. Was that just by going from one traumatic moment to the next? It was kind of just you never actually had to look at that? Didn't deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Like just literally locked it in a box and said, don't open it. Yeah, okay. So so never really got closure with any of those traumas up until 
much later on in life mm-hmm. when I started to go through some of these processes of dealing with the root causes of trauma. Mm-hmm. I would witness some people breaking down in, in the theatre of war. Yeah. And I said, what are you doing? We don't have time for this shit. Yeah. Sort your, sort your crap out. Yeah. You know, you've got a job to do. Yeah. And then there's a part of me that thinks, you know, that was the right response because any sort of lapse in judgment Put yourself in danger. could have cost you or someone else their life. And then part of me thinks back and thinks I had a complete failure of command because I, I feel like I never gave a lot of my soldiers the opportunity to decompress. Mm. You know, now I think it's it's treated very differently where particularly in, for example, the, um, the, the police and the paramedics, after a critical incident or a significant trauma, they're given time to decompress and go over the incident yeah, right. with, a, yeah. with, a, with a professional. You know, that certainly wasn't available in the desert in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we just walk from trauma to trauma to trauma. Yeah. And um, you get that accumulation. Other people, it can be one thing. You know, there can be one incident. Mm. Sometimes it's complex trauma where, you know, you're, you're dealing with things that have set you off as an adult but go back to your childhood. Yeah. You know, childhood sexual trauma, for example, mm. is incredibly deep psychological scarring mm, mm-hmm. for people that that can impact them for their their life so you know trauma is tricky is is basically what i'm saying and you can't yeah. measure it and everyone's different but the reality is the way we deal with trauma through stress and anxiety and and some of these physical things that occur and the nightmares and things like that that is a normal uh, response to an abnormal incident yeah so we need to normalise the idea of some of these, you know, weird stuff going on Mm-mm. because it's not a normal sort of phase of life to, to deal with trauma. And the, mm. when you were talking about service people before, because of the inherent risk of the jobs that they're doing, they're putting themselves at the front lines of the worst parts of humanity and society Mm-mm. where they're exposed to a lot more trauma than the average person yeah. in a in a Western world. Whereas, you know, you grow up in a third world nation, you're, you're getting exposed to trauma from the day you're born. Yeah. There's a lot of people that are brought up that way that don't suffer from PTSD. Yeah. I don't have all the answers, but I'm saying it's difficult and everyone everyone's different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When sometimes that can, you know, that, that can be not in your DNA, but, you know, spiritually, I believe that we're, you know, we're connected beyond, you know, ourselves, you know, metaphysically. It's, you know, for generations, like you're saying, in a third world country, if that's the experience, then that is the lived experience that gets passed down through generations. So there is probably a more of a, a toughness there. And, you know, it might be, might be very visible um, when, you, when you do meet someone from a situation like that. Yeah, well, I think you touched on, you know, that spiritual aspect mm. of it. I mean, the reality is we need to address mental health from a, a physical, a psychological yeah. and a spiritual perspective, Absolutely. I believe. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's where we can find real holistic healing yeah and for me the spiritual aspect of that was incredibly important it gave me huge breakthrough with the ability to find hope yeah hope restored yeah yeah without hope i you don't have very long yeah yeah yeah. i I talk about the rule of sevens like you've got seven weeks without food seven days without water seven minutes without oxygen i'll give you about seven seconds without hope yeah yeah you know and hope for me comes from a spiritual place. Yes, yeah. You know, spirituality is a is an incredibly important part, and I think the medical community is now starting to understand this, 
that we are mind, body and spirit as human beings. We need to address healing across all these areas mm. and they're starting to see the importance of addressing things like moral injury yeah. or soul wounds. Yeah, that was fascinating hearing you talk about that actually. You know, it's so well put and, you know, it is so true that, um, you know, that you could experience something like that in a, in a war zone. Something else that I wanted to to ask you as well is, you know, with everything going on here in Australia and with the inquiry and everything, there's, there must be a lot of veterans and, and returned servicemen who are potentially, you know, having to, to relive some things now. So that must be having a bit of an impact on the, on the, on the veteran uh, and returned servicemen community. Oh, mate, it's, um, it's having an enormous impact. I can't overstate this, mm. really. There is a lot of pain out there. These sorts of things bring a lot of discredit onto onto people and mm-hmm. they take it on themselves. They start to question their own selves. I did as well. I, I mean, it knocked me around personally mm-hmm. and I know how to deal with this stuff and I still found myself struggling as the Brereton Report came out mm-hmm. and some of the implications of that and, you know, this idea of guilt that we spoke about earlier. Yeah. I wasn't amongst the atrocity killers or I didn't commit an atrocity myself but because I wore the same uniform, well, therefore I'm guilty. Yeah. That's called false guilt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, th- this is a concept that people need to understand and and this sort of stuff in the media that I believe is is really quite responsible for a lot of it is, is causing significant injury mm. and continued um, injury amongst the veteran community, the wider veteran community. This is not just the special forces element of the military that's being impacted here. This is everyone that's served. People are questioning their the value of their service, yeah. their their involvement. You know what they did. Did that somehow impact negatively? And I, I think it's it's just a tough situation. But the the message that I would give to any veterans out there that are struggling with this is just check check what you're putting through your mind with a filter that says if the thought starts with if only I'd or I wish I'd or I should have mm. done something differently, then it's probably associated with false guilt. Yeah. And it's probably not true. We need to voice sometimes the, the movies that are playing through our heads with a third party to say, you know, hey, does this sound right mm. to you? Mm. I'll give you a quick personal experience. Yeah. This idea of false guilt nearly cost me my life through suicide. So I was replaying the events of a an incident in Afghanistan that occurred over and over and over again where I'd convinced myself that I was responsible for the deaths of 40-odd children. Mm. So there was an attack, a quite a significant attack in um, Tarankout. It resulted in a number of vehicle-borne IEDs or big car bombs yeah. going off and, and one of them was parked out front of a women's hospital and a, and a primary school. And the kids were playing in the street at the time that this thing was detonated. And it was just a horrific sight when I arrived there to um, render the area safe and assist our forces clearing the buildings. Mm. I replayed the events of that day over and over in my head so many times where I'd convinced myself if only I'd done something different the day before where I could have prevented that vehicle from turning up there. If only I'd been able to search that or identify it. See, I'd seen a vehicle the day before on patrol and I remember thinking we need to check that vehicle out. I'd called it through and we were contacted and we were on our way to another known device. So we were dealing with a 
with an IED at the time. And see, these things started to play tricks with my mind where I'd convince myself that somehow it was my fault that that device had gone off where it had gone off. Now, I never put de- put explosives in a vehicle. I never drove it to a location. I never set it off. But I'd convince myself that I was responsible for it because of this idea of a professional expectation I'd placed on myself to be able to stop things like that occurring. It might not sound normal to someone else, but when you're replaying this stuff over and over in your head and you're convincing yourself that you're guilty, then it wears down the soul to a point where you want to end the pain. And this is false guilt. The difference between conviction and false guilt, conviction is something you've done and that you're responsible for, often leading to trauma to others, but often as a result of trauma that's been done to you. And the only way to get through conviction is to confess and repent. False guilt, you can't do that. You don't own it. You've literally just got to let it go. But to let it go, you've got to come to a realisation that it's not yours in the first place. So... Yeah, this stuff's, you know, it's it's hard to deal with. It's hard for people to get their heads around and understand, but sometimes they just need someone there to hold their hand and unpack their stories to be able to walk them through to find peace. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we've come to the end of our chat, but um, I just wanted to say again, Andy, thank you so much for talking to us and sharing your story. It's a, an amazing story to hear, and it's 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 such a great story of hope that um, I'm sure so many of our listeners will get a lot out of. But what I like to do at the end of each episode is ask one question of all our guests, and that is uh, if our listeners could do one thing to improve their mental health daily, what would that be? Yeah, mate. Um, one thing I would say is think about something you used to enjoy in your life. Maybe it was even as a kid, like a hobby or a sport or or something that you've stopped doing and go and do it. Like for me, I started surfing again and I, I hadn't surfed since I was a young kid and now I love surfing. You know, the ocean is my uh, peace place. I just, I find incredible peace and stability when I'm out in the waves and just doing something simple that brings simple joy to your life that you might have forgotten, you might have just put down, you might have decided to stop. It could be drawing, artwork, singing, acting, anything, whatever it is for you, just go and do it. Do it at least once a week because life's too short to run around and you know go from A to B to Z. You need to do something that brings you joy and do it as regularly as you can. Yeah, thanks for that, mate. I think that's that's one thing that we can so easily forget with our busy lives these days, and that's to find the joy in it. It was actually the word I chose at the start of this year uh, to inspire me going through 2020 was the word joy. A bit of a difficult year to kind of fulfill that, but uh, it's definitely something that's been on my mind this year to do more of. So I think a lot of people will get something from what you've just said there, mate. Uh, So thanks for that. And thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. Your story is an incredible one and it'll be an absolute inspiration for so many people listening. Thanks, mate. If any of your listeners are interested and they're they're maybe seeking support or healing from post-traumatic stress or anxiety or depression and and they're, they're really not sure where to go or maybe they've tried so many other things and nothing's worked, maybe we can help. So our website is ptsdresurrected.org 
and our um, our courses are called Reboot Recovery. Anyone with a service or first responder background, we use the term service very widely. So it could be a teacher, a doctor, a nurse, firefighter, military, police. Services is broad. We've actually had a lot of pastors and um, missionaries complete our training. Basically, people that are exposed to trauma from a service background, then we'd love to have you on one of our courses. They're completely free. You can sign up online. We're, we're running seven courses for 2021. And yeah, look forward to, to meeting some of you in the future. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Ben. I love the program. I've listened to all of your podcasts now and I'll continue to listen to them in the future, mate. You're doing a great job bringing a lot of awareness to the community and real healing that needs to happen for a lot of men out there. So good on you, mate. Thank you so much for what you're doing and it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Andy. Cheers, mate. Andy really is an amazing man. He's had some intense experiences in his life. He's been on an incredible journey and we're grateful to him for sharing that journey with us. Like Andy said, if you'd like to find out more about the great work that he and his wife are doing, head to ptsdresurrected.org. Thanks for listening. Speak to you all next time. Mental is an In Your Ears podcast. Presented and produced by Ben Jenkins. Produced and edited by Charles Amston. With opening music by Nick Kingswell and closing music by Night Radio. For more information on this and other podcasts, check out the In Your Ears podcast's Facebook page. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and spread the word. And if you or anyone you know needs help, call Lifeline on 13 11 14.